Hey there, welcome along to another episode of the High Performance Podcast and this one is part of our Olympic special where we talk to the greatest Olympians, both past and present, about their mindset, their achievements, their struggles, the highs, the lows, the truth. I mean, that's what we want to get to on this podcast from people. We want to get to the truth. And today, with the amazing Kate Richardson Walsh, we do exactly that. Everybody's talking about culture. Everybody talks about having a vision or a mission statement or a goal and even values. You know, I've been into so many places and they're on the wall and they're on their, you know, computer screens and they're everywhere. But you actually say, like, what does that mean? And I've done it, workshopped it with loads of different uh, groups and teams and uh, they keep giving me more values. And I'm like, no, but what, what, are, what will I see, hear and feel? If I came into your place of work, how would I know that this is the value that you, this is what you're about to your core? I love talking to Kate, you know, she's such an inspiring person to have a conversation with. And I'm not just saying that, Kate, because I know you're a fan of the podcast and you listen to them. Um, I genuinely mean it. And I, I can't thank her enough for being so honest and so emotional and going places on this podcast that perhaps she hasn't been before. Um, it was really a special conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. It's coming your way in just a couple of moments. But these Olympic specials are thanks to Lotus. Um, and Lotus, of course, have got Olympic pedigree. They've won a lot of car races. They've also won races on the track when it comes to bikes as well. And they did so in 1992 and they created the bike that pushed Chris Boardman to gold. And they're doing the same with the cyclists at the Tokyo Olympics this year. Um, and we spoke with Lotus and we said, look, how can we create something that just gets even more of a buzz around the Olympics? How can we get to the heart of what Olympians do and what Olympians achieve? And along with Lotus, we've created this Olympic special. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be speaking to all kinds of brilliant people. And there's a couple of episodes that I think, oh, are you going to enjoy them or are they going to challenge you? I certainly left those conversations thinking I need to achieve more with my life. So if that's how it made me feel, I'll be interested to know how it makes you feel. And thanks everyone for getting in touch and talking to us about the Ian Thorpe episode, which came out last Wednesday, of course, which was our first Olympic special. Don't forget, if you want more from the High Performance Podcast, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com and sign up for free to the High Performance Circle where you can get loads more amazing content. But for now, I just want you to sit there with a pen and a paper and make some notes. It's our absolute pleasure to bring you these conversations for free. We want nothing from you in return apart from for you just to get something from these conversations to improve your own life. And I know that today you absolutely will. So welcome to the latest Olympic special in partnership with Lotus on the High Performance Podcast. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today, we welcome the most capped female hockey player Great Britain has ever produced. Our guest carried the flag at the Rio Olympics closing ceremony. She's been awarded an MBE. She's one of only six recipients of the England Hockey Medal of Honour and with her wife Helen, made history, becoming the first same-sex married couple to win an Olympic gold medal together. However, what we really love on this podcast, what we're always interested in on High Performance, is how she did those great things, the lessons she learned along the way, the successes, the failures, the moments that stick in her mind. I can't wait for her lived experience to become lessons for you over the next hour. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome someone we've been keen to speak to on this podcast for a very long time, Kate Richardson-Walsh. Welcome to High Performance. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction and a nice welcome. I'm, it's uh, The pleasure's all mine, honestly. I'm really looking forward to it. Brilliant. Uh, you listen to the pod, do you? I've listened to a couple of episodes. I listened to Dina. I love Dina. I'm a total fangirl over Dina. So um, I've listened to Dina's uh, episode. Great. Well, same question to you that we asked her at the very top of the show. What is high performance? I think it's a complex thing. I think for me, it comes down to standards quite a lot. I think how you set your standards personally and how you challenge yourself against those standards. I think that's that really at the core of it. And then the discipline to follow it up, to follow it through. Even when the going gets tough, I think just that. I think it's the, I think it's Saracens. Um, the men's rugby team have a. Uh, it's the shit that people don't see. They have an acronym for that. I should have probably said the acronym instead. Um, but it's that. It's it's. Are you prepared to do it when no one's watching? When it's the weather's bleak and you're feeling rough, and you, but you need to do it. Do you have that discipline to do it? And then. I think the the thing that I learned, the hardest lesson probably that I learned was that the, the, the need to balance, have balance in that. I was obsessed all in and I didn't have balance. And I think sometimes I think, well, what could I have achieved? What more could I have achieved if I'd have cared for myself the way that I learned to in the last few years of my career? Because I also think that has to that has to play a part. I think there has to be a care that is in that's woven into the high performance. I think it, it's got to be it's about standards and it's got to be about discipline. But unless there's care, I think it can just tip over. So many lovely little things for us to delve into then over the next hour or so. I want to start by talking about resilience then, because you don't you can't create these standards. You t- can't operate at the level you operated at without bags and bags of resilience. Where did your resilience come from? Goodness, um, I think probably looking back. That's probably how I was raised, I think. Um, my my mum and dad were both um, teachers and I think possibly maybe like first generation to go to university possibly and really like wanted myself and my sister to, to just do our best at whatever we set our minds to and kind of just gave us the, the opportunity and privilege, frankly, to, to try lots of different things and lots of different sports and, and fail a lot early. And actually, that's where I think some of that resilience came from, that ability to to know that it's okay to fail and to be able to pick yourself up and to understand what else you need around you um, to help you get through those difficult times. So definitely that, I think that early kind of upbringing, those foundations that both my parents kind of instilled in myself and my sister 
saw me, have seen me all the way through. So can you give us an example of an early failure then, Kay? Yeah, I think there's a major one. There's a real turning point for me. I started playing hockey when I was, what, 12, went to secondary school, and it was just my local comp um, in Stockport. And um, hockey was one of the sports we did in PE. I had a really enthusiastic PE teacher. So I started playing when I was 12 on our Red Um but progressed quite quickly. Um, It was the first team sport I played, so I was doing swimming and gymnastics prior to that. And went through the system. So I went to county, um, went to North of England trials. And then I went to, I didn't know, but they were junior England trials. I just was enjoying playing hockey. And so I was 14, 15, and I was playing for the England under 16s. And I kind of felt like a fish out of water, but I enjoyed it and, and had a great time. But I wasn't given any time or thought or effort or energy at all. I was just following my nose and... You know, I was not looking after my body. I hated running. I was eating like a packet of cookies, watching Neighbours most nights. I was, you know, going out down the park and drinking with my friends on like Friday, Saturday night. Um, just, just wasn't looking after myself in any way. Um, but then the next year, when you should be selected for the England under-16s because I was the right age, um, I got dropped. And I remember, like it's yesterday, and I honestly... The, the emotion hits me right in the core of my chest every single time I think about it. I remember the letter coming through the post because those are the days, that's how I used to find out in those days. And there was a, a list of names. My name wasn't on there. And I ran upstairs, locked the door, the bathroom cried for a few hours and eventually came out. And my mum just sat me down and just, you know, talked to me about it and how I was feeling and she kind of finished the conversation by saying, well, what do you want to do about it? And actually at the time I was like, harsh, mum, that was really harsh. That was such a harsh question. But actually it was the best question she could have ever have asked me because it was really down to me and what I wanted to do about it. Um, where did I want to go? What did I want to be? At that time, even outside of sport, I didn't really have any hopes or dreams or aspirations. I kind of thought they were for other people that went to the posh schools and had, you know, had more opportunity and and so it was it was that it was that was a real turning point for me to say okay right actually what can I do and and I went about making lots of choices and decisions that were going to help me be the best hockey player that I could be which is essentially my answer to that question was I didn't I, I didn't think about Olympics or anything I just thought I just want to be the best hockey player that I can be and I'm going to go after that in in every way and it's interesting seeing you get emotional now talking about getting that letter through. You can see straight away. What is it then about that that makes you emotional? Is it remembering the emotion you felt when you opened the letter? Is it the fact that actually on reflection, it's probably the most important day of your life because it changed things for you? Or was it your mum's amazing and really powerful way of dealing with it? Probably a bit of all of it. And, and to be honest, a big thick layer of shame. Really? Yeah. I am an emotional person and I and emotions like run right at the surface for me, but I think it is that was the initial that was the initial emotion and I think that's the thing that resonates again straight away is I've let myself down, I've let my family down, I've let my coaches down, you know, all these people that have given me their time and energy and expertise and knowledge and I've just I've just done nothing with it frankly and and I just felt a real sense of shame in that and and shame is such a physical emotion isn't it It really like you you feel it in every cell of your body and and I think that's what it is because what intrigues me then on that then Kate is building onto it that one of the things Jake and I were talking about before before we came on the call was you described it in Saracen's culture as the shit that nobody sees and we often refer to it as the work that takes place in the shadows that 
for you to, it's what happens in the shadows, reveals itself in the light. Now, you doing 17 years as an international player involves a lot of ice baths, physio sessions, missing birthday parties and sacrifices that nobody else sees. Now, I understand what was the catalyst that maybe prompted you to be the best player, but what motivated and sustained you for that long? Um, I think a couple of things. I think the first thing is unfinished business. Helen, my wife, who also played in the team um, for 17 years, we often, you know, reminisce because we're all grannies now and talk about had we won a gold medal with the GB team in Sydney in 2000, our first Olympic Games, would we have still been there, Rio 2016, trying to fight for a gold medal? I don't know. So it, they felt that it, for a long period of time, for frankly, for that whole period of time, there was something missing. There was something that we hadn't gained yet. There was things still out there that we wanted to get after. So that was definitely a massive inspiration, motivation. And I think secondly, you know, this might sound a bit cliche, but my teammates, honestly, you're going to make me get emotional in this podcast, aren't you? But my teammates, frankly, were everything. Like some of my best friends in the team, tried on two or three occasions to be selected for Olympic Games, having been selected for other tournaments in between and not making that selection. And I felt a real sense of honour and of duty to represent them. Again, quite early on in my career, in 2004, we failed to qualify for the Athens Olympic Games as the Great Britain women's hockey team. And we'd never done that before. So we're making history for all the wrong reasons. But those women who were of an age where that was the last time they'd ever pull on an international shirt, I kind of stored it away inside me that I had to right those wrongs. Those women didn't deserve to go out like that. And they didn't have the opportunities that we then got later on to have a full-time programme, to have all the technology and, and all the support that we had from all the support services you know, what could they have been, those women? So I just felt that that sense of purpose and of duty to really honour all of those women and my teammates and the people I was playing alongside, of course, as well. That, that on a daily basis, was enough to get me out of bed. It's so interesting hearing you talk like that because I think that when we have these conversations, we speak to someone like Phil Neville, who became the coach of the England women's football team. And, you know, I mem- I'll never forget at the end him saying to us, the biggest learning for me was I had no idea what my sister Tracy, you know, amazing Tracy Neville, what she had to go through just to have the same as me. We didn't even bat an eyelid about the fact that she was travelling five hours to go to training and five hours home again. We were in the Man United Academy and could have laid on a driver for her, but we allowed her to go through that struggle and that strife and that pain. And I, I kind of hope that, your generation is the final generation that has to really struggle to have their voices heard as, as top-level athletes. But then I also feel like for you, there was such a value in that, wasn't there, that you had to have that that scrap and that fight because although it's a totally different fight, in the final few minutes of an Olympic final, what do you draw on? You draw on the moment your mum sat you down. You draw on the memories of all those brilliant women that weren't there to scrap alongside you. There is a real value to that, isn't there? Definitely. I definitely think that there's something about grit. There's something about being able to have experienced moments and times in your life where you've had to dig deep and find that inner grit, that grittiness that says, I can do this, I will get through this, I'll find a way. And I think we all experience that in in lots of different ways. You know, we all have privilege, but we all will 
have um, moments of where we're perhaps unprivileged or discriminated in some way and um, for various reasons and actually just to to use those moments as learnings and, and growth which seems really hard and difficult at the time but I think if we are able to do that then yeah I think it can be your greatest strength and I think for us as a team in Rio I think just bringing all of those different lived experiences and and everything you've brought in your life to the table as individuals with unique strengths I think that was really one of the keys that really set us apart from from our opposition. And was it was it spoken about during the Rio experience? Did you talk about those women that sort of broke down those doors for you all to walk through? Or was it something that you were just all aware of and, and you all had in your minds? No, I mean, I, I suppose it helped having a couple of grannies. So me and Helen were, oh, I was 36 in Rio and Hells was 34. Um, and we kind of bridged, I suppose, that era, the the you know era when we all worked and we had a little bit of lottery funding. And even prior to that, when there was no funding at all and everybody just worked, turned up at weekends or had to take time off work to, to even have a training camp um, to where it is now. That's a full time centralised programme and there's national lottery funding. And that we were able to bring some of those stories and people to life. And we invited some of the ex-players in as well to talk to us about what their experience was and what what the, what it was like for them and I think and the, this new squad invited I felt really old invited myself and and Helen and a couple of the older players to to come and talk about their history because we can be so disconnected from what had been before but it is really important to to honor that memory and to to understand what's gone before to help you pave the way for the future so what do you explain for us then Kate because this is one of the things that fascinates me and it frustrates me in equal measure that we hear people these days talk about the, this generation, this soft, they don't have the toughness that we had growing up and things like that. And I often think it's such a lazy sort of stereotype that, it, you know, it's like we haven't evolved that quickly, that people have changed that differently. So you've been captain for 13 years and playing internationally for 17. What was the biggest change that you saw over that time? And equally, what was the 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 biggest constant that you saw over that time as well? Wow, that is such a good question. I think the biggest constant was the change. I think that the change was constant. I think that was part and parcel of being there. You know, players came and went, coaches came and went, funding came and went, you know, everything, the game changed, the rules changed, the technology, everything in it, in everything about the environment, the experience, what it was to be a hockey player, an international hockey player, changed. So I, th- I think that was the constant thing that we experienced. I mean, in terms of what well, you're talking about, kind of personalities and, and people and perhaps uh, mindsets and attitudes, I don't think that changed either. And I, to- and I agree with you. I think it is lazy. And we love to paint with a really broad brush because it's easy and it's comfortable and put people in- into boxes and because it- that's easy for us to just co- compartmentalise everything. And actually, when we took those boxes away, when we released some of those um, stereotypes and actually just allowed people to be everything that they are and, and wanted to be, then I think that's when people really thrived. So I didn't notice. And I, and I do some coaching now with the kind of England under-18s and England under-16s now and again. I get called in as a guest coach and I still see players there with fire in their eyes and hunger in their belly and they're going to do what it takes because they want it. And they, they they want to be about high performance. You know, it's it's that you see in them. I don't agree. So I suppose the question is, Kate, 
from your unique position and it is a unique position you know to go from the challenges that you had as a as a young player and I know that you know you were you were quite shy at school you know you weren't the outgoing here I am leading a group of amazing women to win a gold medal that wasn't you to go from that into the world of a sport which is underfunded and undervalued and underappreciated under celebrated to take the sport to the moment that every single person listening to this podcast now remembers where they were watching when that gold medal finally happened. I mean, that is like, that's the journey of all journeys. What message would you give to parents who are listening to this today and have children? They want their children to have that resilience and that dream and that fortitude and those vitamins and minerals to really go out and, and make an impact. I think it's really hard being a being a parent of a little one now, but I think allowing them to take risks, giving them space to explore themselves and who they want to be and, and what that looks like and um, sounds like and feels like, I think just, and being there for them, to support them in that. I, f- I really feel really privileged and lucky that my mum and dad, both for myself and my sister, just let us spread our wings and fly. And at times that would have hurt them. You know, at times that kind of brought distance between us in terms maybe geographically but the love that we have for each other comes from what they gave us is that freedom to explore ourselves and the world to really learn about the world as broadly and as widely as possible and I think that will will always help your kids and youngsters be where they need to be and want to be and I think that's all you can ever wish for for your for your kids. And is there also something about celebrating imperfection? Definitely. I'm a big Brené Brown fan. Brené Brown is a is a researcher and a sociologist and she one of her books is The Gift of Imperfection. And um I just could not agree with that more. Yeah, we we are imperfect beings and that's okay. And actually some of that imperfection will help us acknowledge our strengths first and foremost but also help us you know navigate the world and guide us and lead us in the directions that we want to travel as well ignoring them I think is dangerous I think it's actually getting in touch with them and accepting them and acknowledging which is you know sounds really easy me talking about it on a podcast so wait so when did you learn to do that then because I imagine as a you know a bullied shy child at school you were you weren't celebrating your imperfection then no not at all no I I really wish I was somebody else for the longest time, frankly, up into my 20s, hockey felt like a safe environment for me. So I feel like hockey saved me in that way because outside of that, I didn't have any kind of a strong group of friends or connections to people. And I don't know if that's because I had a lack of trust from being bullied at primary school. I just wasn't able to open up in that way with people. It was all quite surface level. And yeah, hockey definitely just gave me that safe space, but I still, it was still a quite a process for me to really accept myself for who I am and who I was and who I wanted to be and and all the imperfections that you talked about and my strengths which which actually it was also probably just as hard because we were rubbish I was rubbish at saying I'm still rubbish at saying what I am excellent at what I'm, I am exceptional at but that's just as important as knowing what my imperfections are as well so it was just a real process of just failing learning growing and just con- consistently doing that I think being given the responsibility of that captaincy at such a young age, I think, gave me confidence that they'd seen something, my teammates had voted me in, seen something in me that, that they wanted um, to lead them. So that really forced me, I think, to think about a little bit more about what I had, what I didn't have, what I could and couldn't be. So can we talk then around that role as captain and how you learned to both give and receive feedback? I mean, I'd, I'd been fortunate enough to spend time in the company of Danny Kerry, 
uh, your coach from that time. And I know Danny speaks really powerfully about after 2012, the feedback he had from you as a group for him as a coach that forced him to really rethink his position and come back and change quite radically. So would you tell us about the skills of both giving and receiving feedback then, Kate? Danny and I had a really interesting relationship and we, we clashed in lots of ways and probably because we were similar in lots of ways. And I think that was possibly one of them. I think, you know, it's because we both, both of us from a similar generation, we grew up believing that leadership was this very narrow thing. It had to look and sound like a, cert- it's a certain way. It was autocratic, you know, um, dictatorial. It was very, um, I say you do. And I couldn't really see myself in that, but I tried to mould myself into that. And I think Danny, you know, did the same thing. And yeah, he did get some really hard feedback from from the players. And he, you know, took some time to think about that and went away and just, you know, with his kind of growth mindset, he got support from mentors. He started reading reading different books and just trying to find his way. And I did exactly the same. You know, I, you know, had some you know some really good honest feedback from from people that you know this isn't working for me Kate when you say this it makes me feel like this it actually you're stifling me or you're you're not helping me perform with the best I can which was you know really hard for them to say really hard for me to receive but really important because then I could start to do something about it so it really shaped I suppose the books that I started to read the leaders that I started to look to and the conversations that I had with players but that was again. I had so many. We got. We were just gifted in so many ways by being part of that that team, particularly in that centralised program, because we had time to work with our psychologists on these kind of things to to be able to open up conversations to say, this is how you're impacting me, and this is how I would like to receive feedback, and the words you use, the timing, the tone, everything about those conversations, and actually avoiding them is the worst thing you can do. The fear of them is far greater than what the, you'll feel like having the conversation itself and and actually just how special that feedback can be. So what was the most special feedback you got then, Kate? Five months out from Rio. And so what we so at the beginning of 2016 and I was in the gym and I'd had a bit from 2014, I had a bit, I'd had a real, I had a real rocky patch and was kind of just about coming out the other side of it, but not really. And this player came up to me in the gym, it's a young player, um, hadn't been playing in the team that long, maybe one or two years. I had a really good relationship with her. And um, she came over to me in the gym and I was doing my chin-ups when I could do chin-ups in those days. And I had my weight belt on and she came over and she just said quietly to the side, I think you can put more weight on that belt, Kate. And I was like, you know, had my defence mechanism went up. I was like, who does she think she is? Like talking to me, an experienced player. She's this kid, you know, had all that reaction. And then I calmed down and sat down and and I thought about what she'd said and I thought about it for the rest of the session. And I thought, oh gosh, she's right. In lots of ways, I'd kind of shut down to protect myself. And I was a little bit coasting in some areas into my last Olympic Games and into my retirement. That's not who I am. That's not what the team's about. And she was absolutely right to challenge me and to give me some honest feedback on that. And and I went to her, I had a really good conversation, said thank you, um, and asked her permission to share it in the next players' meeting. And I did, and I just shared what she'd said, and I shared how I felt and, and what I was then going to do about it. And, you know, those moments are just golden nuggets. It was really brave of her to come and say that to me in that moment. But the impact it had was revolutionary and we all have that opportunity every day and 
I think sometimes, I know I sometimes avoid having those hard conversations because it feels like it's going to be really uncomfortable and it's going to be hard and there's going to be emotions. And actually, if you think about it in the way of you're doing that person a disservice, if you don't go and talk to them, actually the way to make this person and this team the best it can be is to actually just go and have that conversation. Think about how you have it. Think about the timing and the words and all that. But I think go and have it. And and that was such a good lesson for me in so many ways. So at that point, how many years had you been captain for when that young player had that conversation with you? Well, 13 years practically, yeah. And I want you to take this in the spirit that it's meant, right? I'm surprised you had that reaction, having been the captain for that long. Like, in my head, I kind of assumed by 2016, you had it sorted. You were the captain, everything was going in the right direction. You'd have read the books, you'd have had the conversations. If some young player came to you with a bit of advice, you would have gone, you know what, my growth mindset says that's great. And I applaud you for the fact you've come and said that to me, the great Kate Richardson Walsh, the captain of the team. How did it take you to that point in your career to see that as a healthy conversation, not an unhealthy one? Well, I think it, it's just the fact that we're all human and we all slip. And nobody's perfect. Mm. And I think just having that awareness and knowledge in the team was really helpful. And, and it's a team sport. You know, I, re- I relied on my teammates as much as they relied on me. And that's why it can't ever be about one person. I was the captain, but I had the whole team of leaders. We were all leaders in that team. Every single person in that squad was a leader and we were developing ourselves as leaders and you never stop. I think sometimes we, you know, we think, oh, we'll go on a course and we'll read a book. We've absolutely nailed it. And actually you never stop learning and growing as a leader and we're imperfect and we have egos and we have blind spots and that's all good stuff. And I think just being open to that is, is the joy of it and is, is, is the growth mindset is that yeah, I'm not going to have ever really accomplished this. I will keep on trying for till my, you know, till the end of days. And you've got to find joy in that, I think. And you're now at a point where you're able to sit here and talk about the vulnerability and the difficulties and the challenges. Was part of this when you were the England captain about you kind of felt like your role wasn't to be vulnerable. It wasn't to be the person in the room who was struggling. So this was a front that you put on to be who you were to be a captain in in your sort of image of what a captain is to protect yourself yes without a shadow of a doubt yes partly because of I suppose the leaders that I'd had around me what I'd seen leadership was I think it was you know nobody was talking about mental health you know when I was when I was growing up and into my 20s it wasn't even just taboo, it just wasn't a topic of conversation. So you put a mask on and you crack on and you get on with it. And whether you're having the worst day in the world, you don't want to affect everybody else around you. So you put a smiley face on and you, you know, you crack on. And it was a real moment for me. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a moment in time. It was definitely a, over a period of time. But for myself and, and I think my teammates, when we started to understand that we're going to have good days and bad days and those external factors all playing out in our lives outside of being a hockey player. There are things that we don't know about one another that we're going through and all of this is going to affect us and that makes us human. And actually, if we are able to create little pockets of space for people to share that in a way that they feel comfortable, then not only does it help that person, but the bonds of trust and respect that it created between us were just so powerful. And it's that shared experience, that connectivity that you can't fast track and you can't mimic or get any way other than 
that deep level of connection and of sharing of vulnerability. But it was a real process for me. But, you know, I still hear now leaders talk about, oh, I really, I'm really concerned that the people are going to see it as a weakness if I, if I share my vulnerabilities, that they're going to think I'm not strong and I'll, I'll lose my power. But actually, I think, I, well, you know, when I think, you know, and Danny, when he shared his vulnerabilities with us about his leadership, about the leadership of the team, it connected, it was like, oh, right, okay, you know, he's a human being, he also has good days and bad days, and we can talk about that. Um, I think it just makes them more reachable and approachable, and I think that can only be a good thing for leaders. I heard Danny once use a great, well, I asked him a question once of the difference between coaching men and women, and he had a really neat phrase that said, when you coach a group of men, you can praise them and they feel that they belong. Whereas he said with the women's team, his experience was you have to belong before you can praise them. Was that idea that you have to be seen as a member of the group before you feel you can receive that praise and, and acknowledge it in very real terms. What was your experience of that? This is one of the uh, moments me and Danny would have a really good in-depth conversation and we might sit on different <laughs> sides of the fence on this one. Because I, I I feel a little bit like that's a bit of a broad brush approach again, where okay. you put all kind of women in this box and all men in this box. And actually, we're all different and we all want and need different things. And, you know, perhaps there are some generalizations and perhaps there are, you know, some things that are more pertinent because of how we're raised as traditionally as boys and girls or, you know, whatever. And actually, I think breaking some of that down I think these are going to be really healthy and also helpful for the next generation, I think, of youngsters, particularly who are growing up being really conscious of their identity and who they are and around their gender and how they are in the environment, how they're treated and respected and how they respond to things. And so I think I just feel it's a bit narrow. I, I think um, yeah. it is a lovely, neat phrase. And obviously, Danny's experienced it. So I'm not I'm not knocking his experience. He's coached no, no, his team. Yeah, and I'd also defend him by saying that I framed the question in that way. So maybe I, it's like maybe he was responding to my narrow focus rather than responding that way. So I don't want to misquote him or make him feel that I'm putting him in a box. <laughs> yeah, but I was interested in that in that dynamic that he described because I I worked with Tracy Neville with the uh, with the roses, and I found it was an interesting dynamic that forced me to rethink some of my approaches. Right, and that was a context in which I asked him. Yeah, no, fair enough. No, I think, I mean, I think, I definitely think it's an interesting take, but I know that there has been players that I've played with who would respond in what you might traditionally, he, you know, what might, in Danny's uh, view of things, might assume it's a male way. And and I think there's there's players who would certainly want to feel like that sense of belonging before they can can take on that that praise. Yeah, I, you know, I, there's there's definitely something in it, but I'd like to think that, we were all individuals and we're all really different. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What would you like people, Kate, to take away from this conversation about how we just need to not allow our unconscious bias to take over when we think about male and female sports or achievements. Or It's a really difficult one. You know, like a lot of people, I have a boy and a girl. I try my absolute best to bring them up exactly the same, but I'm certain that I say and do things differently with Florence than I do with Sebastian. I, you know, a really good example, yesterday I went to watch British Touring Cars. I took Sebastian and a male friend. She went to a friend's house. Why do we do that? You know, it's a really strange kind of, it's so deep rooted, I think, in some of us, isn't it? Oh my God, it's, t- it's really hard. Um, all of our biases is deep rooted. You know, we, you know, when we think about race and identity, when we think about um, ableism, when we think about, you know, everything, we are seeing the world from our perspective and what we are and who we are and how we've been raised. But I think the starting point is just being aware of it. I think just being conscious of it, I think, is the starting point. And then you can start to say, well, do we want to do something about this? And what might that look like? You know, do you offer it up? Do you ask um, Florence next time? Or, you know, because she might not want to go. You know what I mean? So it's not, you can't just force things on on people just because you want it to all be equitable. Yeah. And Well, no, that is what happened. But then why didn't she want to go though? Like, what's ha- why is my son not saying he'd rather go and be at a friend's house and my daughter not saying yes, take me to tour and cars? So something's happened hasn't it over the eight years she's been on the earth that makes her feel I'd rather go to a friend's house than watch cars racing around a track but it's not necessarily a bad thing but it's there all the time isn't it and I just think the opportunity to have this conversation with you is a unique one and I'd love parents and teachers and business leaders to hear this this kind of conversation yeah I mean it's, a, it's such a good point Jake and we Helen and I talk about this all the time whilst we're raising little Pfeiffer and you know we've even noticed we're, we're really trying really hard not to say good girl for, you know, for just little things that she does because we say more often, it's, it's been shown or in research, that we'll say good girl to girls, but we wouldn't say good boy to boys in the same way. So girls grow up thinking, I need to prove that I'm good. I need to do things to show to other people that I'm good, that I can get praise by doing things. And we don't necessarily raise boys in the same way. And again, that's a really broad brush, but... You know, it's just little intricacies like that. And when we go to our grandparents, they're just throwing out the good girls left, right and centre. And it's really well meant. And it's with such love and warmth and good intent. You don't want to stop them from saying that. What about saying that it's good that you did that drawing? That was a good finishing off your tea. No, you know, whatever it might be, actually just be more specific rather than just being about girls just have to try to be good in life. Um, and they have to just do these extra things to to be seen as good. And I think that it's it's all those little, which is, you know, when you're in 
parenting mode or any leadership mode, you know, when you're in the cold face and it's like really hard, you're not necessarily thinking that clearly or consciously about what you're saying and not saying. But I think by having conversations, listening to different people, like Helen and I are following lots of various different people on social media just to give us different thoughts and ideas. And then we can have a conversation about, you know, how we raise Pfeiffer. But it's, that's just me and Helen. What about when she goes to nursery? What about she, when she goes to a friend's house? You know, what's that experience like? Can't control everything. So I think it's also just knowing you can do what you can do as a parent. And there are certain things in your realm of um, control and there are other things that are out of your control. Um, but at least being conscious and aware of it, I think, is is key. So as somebody that is very conscious of language and things like that, can I ask you around that speech that you would have given to the girls in, in Rio in 2016? You know, when you went to the extra time period and you all gathered together and I remember sat up late on the Friday night watching it and sort of biting my fingers to the quick. But for you, you've had all these near misses. You've had the 17 years of operating in the shadows. What did you say to them at that moment in time? And where did you try to focus their mind? I don't honestly think I said anything. So I remember the final whistle went, um, so we knew we were going to penalties. And... Um, I remember celebrating and I remember celebrating really positively because I knew and we knew that if we could take it to penalties because we had Maddie Hinch, who's one of the best goalkeepers against the the running penalties. And then we had a really good set of um, penalty takers that we trusted and we, we knew they'd done the work. That was like a win for us. You know, you can't you can't assume you're going to win in penalties, but we knew we'd given ourselves another, another good chance. It kind of felt like we had two bites of the cherry, try and win in normal time or go to penalties. So I remember my initial reaction was just like, you know, well done, like celebrate, like just getting that vibe throughout the team. Everyone was on the same kind of page as me. And then we came into the huddle and we were so present that one of our um, assistant coaches kind of jumped the gun a bit because we'd literally talked through all the processes, how this was going to work. We knew this was gonna, whether we were ever going to go to penalties in this tournament or not, or not, we knew how this was going to work. So we came together and one of our assistant coaches got a bit excited and went to jump the gun to start talking about who was going to take the penalties. And everyone was just like, that's all right. We'll just wait for Danny to come down and he'll come down, have a conversation and then we'll... And it was just so calm. Brilliant. And it was that moment you kind of like to just have a little smile to yourself because you're like, we are so on it right now. We're so in the moment that we are able to just see past all this kind of external stuff and just go through the processes that we talked about in a meeting room like thousands of miles away and take all the emotion out of it. And, and I think that's what I tried to do. So in the huddle before the games, in the change room when we did stuff, it was definitely about taking the emotion out because the emotion's there. The emotion is heightened, the motivation, the inspiration, everything is right there. And actually what we needed in those moments, in that team needed in those moments was just clarity of role and task and just getting people's heads into some tactical things or the first two minutes or in the change room before the game, we might get people to just talk about the things that they're personally going to deliver for the team on that day. Just getting people's attention focused on that, I think, was the thing that we needed. And that's what we did in that moment just before we went to penalties. It was just like, get get on to task. And where did you learn the sort of art then of, at times, silent but powerful leadership? Because... It would be so easy, and I'm sure you would have done early in your career as a captain. You'd have gone, oh, bloody hell, penalties in the biggest game of our lives. 
I better say something really loud and proud and start shouting to make everyone realise the gravity of this situation, you know? It's quite a, like, it's actually quite scary to think, I'm just going to be quiet for a minute. I'm not sure I'd be able to do that. So many times. I, because I, I, I thought it was all about big speeches, you know, you see in the movies, yeah. you know, yeah. as any given Sunday, the, what is it? The, in- it's about the inches yeah. in front of your face. Like, yeah. All of that. The, the miracle, the um, ice hockey film, like all, every sports film, there's a big speech and everyone's like, wow. I definitely thought it was about that. Um, and I did that. I I actually did that. So um, it was a tournament in South Korea in 2003. And we got to the final against South Korea and I was like, right, this is my Any Given Sunday moment. So I wrote this epic speech. It was around the South Korean flag, how we needed to have yin and yang balance in the side. We needed to have all the four elements in the corner of the flag, bring them out of us to win this game. Honestly, it was it was long and epic. <laughs> um, and then it rained biblically for like two days. The pitch was waterlogged and we, can, we didn't play the game. And I think that was like a real like, Okay, yeah. it's probably not about big speeches or, you know, and I'd in the huddles, I would try and say like all these quotes and metaphors and really bad stuff. I look back and think, oh my word, what people must have been shaking their heads at me. And actually just trying to get into what that team needed at that time. So if I was captain in my club side, that might need um, a bit of oomph and a bit of because people were coming from work or they travelled miles and you know they'd just woken up two hours ago, or where or you're playing Olympic final. Where is the emotion and the energy and what is it? What does it need right now? Um, I think it was Bill Belichick, one of the books I read, talked about taking the temperature in the room, which I just loved, just being that sense of where do they what do they need right now and. Can I give it? Can I take it away? Who else can give it? Because I might not be the best person. And that was, again, a long lesson learned. But What a great lesson, though, because when you talk about your big sort of Churchillian moment, you know, your moment to be Robert De Niro, you said, I thought this was my opportunity to do my every, any given Sunday moment. So it's almost like the emotion there is this is the right thing for me. Yet you've got a group of women around you who need something totally different. And that's such a good lesson in leadership and a mistake that, we make sort of in everyday life, how often do we make a decision or do something because it works for us rather than what's the right thing here? No, definitely. I mean, Danny often talked about, it's not about what you want, it's about what you need. You know, I might want in that moment to be the big, yeah, be the big boys and like, you know, take the centre stage. But actually what I need and what the team need right now is this, this and this. And actually I've got to deliver that. So that was a really good um, lesson, I think, from him that I that I learned. So... Where does all this energy go now then? Because we've had this conversation about someone at the absolute cutting edge of a sport that grew exponentially in your time. You have been at the epicentre of one of the greatest sporting moments that this country has seen in the last 20 or 30 years. Where does the energy, where does, the, where does, where does it all go now that you're no longer involved at that elite level on the pitch? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I'm doing, I'm doing what I did, but in a really different environment. So... Um, I'm going into to different organisations and businesses and companies and I'm working currently part-time at Virgin Media, just doing the same thing, helping people thrive, giving people the best opportunity to be the best version of themselves and helping groups of people become teams and really get the best out of themselves um, as well. So that is where I'm at right now. I'm also you know, coaching a club team in the Premier Division of the Women's um, National League alongside Sarah Kelleher, who's an ex-Irish international. 
So I'm still um, involved in in sport and I'm still involved with people and teams because I'm obsessed by that. I'm obsessed by how you get this random group of people with all these different strengths around one table all pulling in the same direction and creating these magical bonds um, between them. I just think that is just a joyful thing. So give us a hack then, Kate, that you would take from your international hockey experience that applies to the corporate world to create a high-performing team? Everybody's talking about culture. Everybody talks about having a vision or a mission statement or a goal and even values. You know, I've been into so many places and they're on the wall and they're on their, you know, computer screens and they're everywhere. But you actually say, like, what does that mean? And I've done it, workshopped it with loads of different uh, groups and teams and uh, they keep giving me more values. And I'm like, no, but what, what, are, what will I see, hear and feel? If I came into your place of work, how would I know that this is the value that you're, this is what you're about to your core. And, you know, I think it's like 10% of organisations operationalise their values into into actual actions. Um, and I think that for us was the difference. I think getting explicit about things, about your behaviours and, and actions means you can challenge yourself against something concrete and you've got licence to challenge each other against that as well and celebrate them as well when the, when when you see them and, and, um, and get to experience them. So I think that for me is is first and foremost the most important thing of all that took us from being kind of average to being outstanding for a kind of period of, of five, six years. And for people listening to this, whether they're business leaders or teachers, and we, we get a lot of people involved in the world of sport as well, professional coaches, amateur coaches, competitors, what is the first thing that you would recommend people doing if they kind of, they don't have a culture at the moment? They're, they're kind of doing okay and they're swimming along. What's the what's the questions they should be asking themselves at the very beginning of the process? Uh, I think it's again a question that Danny asked us in 2009 when we first came together as a centralised programme and he, he stood at the front of the room and said, how do you want to be remembered? And I think it's such a powerful question because it, it's, again, it's, it's this is in your gift you know, what do you want to be about and how do you want to be remembered? What is that going to take? And let's like talk about that. Let's talk about the fears that we have around that. Um, let's talk about the past failures um, that we've had. And, you know, once you've kind of talked about that and got all that experience out and knowledge, I think it starts to become clear that that vision or that purpose, why you're here, why you're giving your time to this, your precious time. And that has to that has to mean something. I think if you get people aligned to that, then I think you, you're already moving in the right direction. Because I know when you won the gold, you had sort of the, th- the three values that you lived by. We are winners. Be alive, which I love, by the way. I think that one's really interesting. And we are one team. Can you just explain to us how you came to those three and then how you made them come alive every single day? Yeah, so our vision was um, be the difference, create history, inspire the future. So that was very much about kind of reflecting on the past and the history and the legacy and then looking forward to what we could be, what we wanted it to be, what influence could we have on wider society and then the being mindful and present. And... Once we'd, and this was meetings, you know, just lots of um, sitting in rooms, having conversations, the psychologist, Andrea First, Dr. Andrea First, prompting us, giving us good questions, sending us off into small groups, coming back, having some really good debate and conversation and disagreement on various points, and then drilling down into what either don't we have and do we need to make that vision come to life? And what is that going to sound like? Because 
we in the past we've had and there's nothing wrong with generic values because words have meaning and they should carry meaning but you know we could have had you know respect communication those kind of words but we felt that we needed something that was personal to us that we could weave into the fabric of who we were that we could base our um game analysis around that we could base our training sessions around um so that we got to we are one team because we had been anything but a team in the two years in the build up to that point in 2015 when we came up with that those visions values and behaviors we'd we'd just been a group of individual players for various reasons so we needed to be explicit about what it is to be a team because you you two might have really strong feelings about what it is to be a team and i might have very different but also very strong thoughts as well and actually unless we get aligned on that we're all going to be pulling in different directions and then we are winners was because we were just far too nice we were very British about everything and we just needed to be ruthless and actually own winning, talk about winning, celebrate winning, find ways to win in any situation and understand that that there will be great learning from the moments where we don't win, but that we are winners was a really important one. And I think possibly the difference between the group that we had in London, which was a phenomenal group, there was the really foundations of what happened in Rio but the difference, I think, was that ruthlessness. And then Be Alive was all about being mindful and present and being totally here. I had the best job in the world as a hockey player, but my mind hurt, my body hurt. And there were days when, you know, many days when, you know, I didn't jollily skip into training, you know, all the joys. And actually, can I still be here with you? Can I be with you in a meeting and the information is going in and I'm really thinking about what conversations I might need to have off the back of this meeting. What member of staff do I need to talk to? What group of players do I need to get together? What bit of video do I need to watch? Or am I just letting it go in one ear and out the other? And, you know, we've all been there. We've all been in in meetings and we've all seen other people be in meetings when they're not there. And we, we didn't have time for that. We had 18 months from turning it round to, as the England team, finishing 11th out of 12 at a World Cup in 2014 to thinking that we could go to Rio and play in for that gold medal. So we had to like really shift this. We had to shift the down. We had to shift it quickly. So that was why I think we needed to be particularly explicit about these be- these values and these behaviours. And what happened with those that didn't buy into it then? So I know you had these meetings that gave people a chance to buy in, but was there any casualties along the way that just refused to uh, absorb them? No, I don't think so. Because I think there needed to be some wiggle room and there needed to be, you need to have people that push the boundaries and give you a bit of check and challenge. Because if you don't, it's going to be robotic and boring. So actually those people that kind of sit on the board you know on the kind of edges of things they were they were really important they think differently to everybody else they challenge things and actually I think that was another changing moment for me to acknowledge that those I mean people call them mavericks whatever you want to call them the outliers actually they are just as important as the as the people with in the critical mass um because you can get too boring and homogenous otherwise so we didn't have a great deal of turnover in the squad but having this culture, having this sense of who we were really helped us bring people into the squad because, you know, in a, being able to communicate that really clearly, it says it says to those people immediately, like, this is what it is to be to be part of this team. And, we, and here we are, welcome you, you into it um, and we'll support you in in understanding and, and driving it with us all at the same time. So I think it was really at the centre of everything, really. I've loved 
the last hour or so having this conversation. We're about to move on to our quickfire questions. Before we do, though, I remember at the very beginning you spoke about the importance of a sense of balance, and we then you know had a brief discussion about the fact that you, there was challenges in your childhood as well, and right up until your twenties you wanted to be somebody else. Where are you now in terms of being happy with yourself? I feel like I am happy with the fact that I am an imperfect being and that I am growing and learning so much every day and that that is what actually ultimately what makes me happy is the knowledge that I am living breathing person who has a role and value in this world being just the way I am Um, and that some people aren't going to like that and that's okay that's also absolutely fine and that actually really it's my acceptance of myself which is the most important thing and that will help me feel like I belong in the world I love that and can I just check that you do also understand that you're just as valuable and just as valued when you're not an international hockey player fighting for gold medals right yes that's a hard lesson to learn that was a hard lesson to learn because 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 I've done it for so long and because who I was as a person and who I was as Kate Richardson Walsh, captain of the England and Great Britain women's hockey team, were one. And I felt like losing that part of myself meant I lost myself. And the challenge was to just take all that good stuff that I'd learned, all that growth that I'd found as a hockey player and actually help that develop me. And that I wasn't losing anything. That I was just going to add a bit more, a few more strings to my bow. But that's taken me a good three years to wrap my head around that and to, to get through that that transition. So what advice would you give then, Kate, to anyone that is making a transition from one role or one identity to another in their lives? I think definitely just getting comfortable with that, that the fact that it is going to be different, but that difference isn't a bad thing. I remember talking to my therapist um, about my retirement and I said it felt like the edge of a cliff and I felt like I was going to jump off into the abyss. And she was like, yeah, we need to, we need to think about that because that's not great. So we talked, you know, we talked a lot about how I was visualising it and actually that actually to see this as an opportunity rather than um, a loss. And so to think about me taking off from that edge of the cliff and actually taking flight. And, you know, that's, again, a really lovely analogy to, to talk about. But actually to get your head around it and actually do it is, um, has been a bit, a bit more of a challenge. But I think just being kind to myself, it's helped that Helen and I were going through it at the same time to be able to talk about it and share and totally get it 100%. Um, so that's been, that has been really helpful. But I think just get comfortable with that there will be some changes and that the changes are okay. I remember talking to a CEO and he said, yeah, I'm going to retire. I'm really excited. I'm going to play loads of golf. And I was like, brilliant. Like, great. You've got a plan. Love it. He's like, yeah, I don't need this anymore. And I said, have you thought about, you know, what it's going to be like the first time you introduce yourself to someone? Because how do you introduce yourself now? And he said, yeah, my name, I'm the CEO of blah, blah, blah. And I say, now it'll be your name and there'll be a bit of a pause. And you've got to get comfortable with that pause. And that, you know, it's it's those kind of things that you just time, it just takes time and, and processing it. So how do you introduce yourself now then? I'm Kate Richardson Walsh. I'm good enough. Yeah. Amazing. Um, quick fire questions at the end of our interview, if you don't mind. Um, three non-negotiables that people around you must buy into. I mean, it's kind of related to the team, but definitely that the team's first. Um, it's not about the individual, it's about the team. That 
And so, you know, think about society. If we think if we think about the broader society first, then we're going to make better choices than if we're just very selfishly thinking about our just the lane that we are in. Um, so I think that's the first one. I think that it it's it's you. It starts with you. It ends with you. You can be the change you want to see. You can make things happen. You can create wonderful opportunities for yourself and other people. But it it, it is within you. You you have that that power within you. Those gifts. Um, I think the acknowledgement of that. And then I think what we talked about earlier about the the chat the, the being open to challenge get challenging me and being open to have challenge yourself I think that is that is the growth mindset effectively isn't it it's just having that growth mindset I think that's really important for for the people that I'm around and work with so what's one piece of advice that you'd give to a teenage Kate just starting out on her journey well I think it's probably come out through the through our conversation but you know you're enough just be you all of you you know the bits you like the bits you perhaps don't like as much it's still you and it's lovely so I think that's the message what is your biggest strength and also your biggest weakness <laughs> Helen and I talk about this a lot we talked about strengths and weaknesses obviously a lot uh, as athletes but we continue to talk about it as a couple um I think my biggest strength is that I care a lot I care about uh, justice and equality I just I really care deeply my biggest weakness is that I care. <laughs> I sometimes care too much. And sometimes that's bad for me. Sometimes it's actually bad for other people. And it's just my my awareness of that, just not letting that tip over. What's one book recommendation you'd make for our listeners? Oh, can I do two? Is that rude? Definitely. These two are I still turn to today. So the first one is Phil Jackson, Eleven Rings. I just love how he talks about leadership, how it comes from within, how he dealt with the players that he had, some of the mavericks that he had, how he reached them, built relationships with them, cared about them. And particularly in a kind of very masculinized um, environment, very stereotypical masculine environment. So I love that. And then another one is an oldie as well. It's Bill Walsh, um, the score takes care of itself. And he was the uh, coach of the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s. I, I'm a 49ers fan, but it's, it's his, him talking about culture and the power of culture being woven into everybody from the caretaker or the janitor to the starting quarterback. They've all got to live, own, breathe, drive the culture. They all have value and they all have worth and one can't exist without the other. And I think that that lesson for me was very, really well learned very early on. So I'd, I'd still turn to that book. I think it's a great one. Brilliant suggestion. Thank you. And the final question, your one golden rule, your one final message for people listening to this to live their own high performance life. I would probably be the same message that I'd give to my teenage self it is that it can come, it is within you that and that you will grow and develop um, and learn so much, but it essentially is within you that that gift to be whatever it is you want to be is, is right within you. Oh man, thank you so much. That's been quite an emotional hour long conversation, hasn't it? You're, um, you're the sort of, you're the epitome of the power of imperfection, perhaps. And I, I, I'm so pleased that, you know, when you go back to that person that you didn't want to be when you were in your 20s, how great that you stuck with her, eh? Yeah, I'm worked, pleased. Worked right. Yeah, it worked out well for that girl, yeah. That girl from Stockport. The Queen of the North. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think the story is far from over. I look forward to seeing what's next in the chapter, oh, you know? Definitely. 
Damien. Jake. Do you know what? Look at the people who achieve great things. Look at the struggles and the issues and the questions they ask themselves. Look at the dark places they've been to. And these are the people who are pushing the boundaries, doing things that no one else has ever done before. I think it's really important that we understand that. Definitely. I think there's one four-letter word that really came out in our chat there with Kate, which was the word grit. There's um, research on this by a lady called Angela Duckworth, a psychologist that did some pioneering research at West Point Academy with American soldiers that were going through training, and she gave them a questionnaire which was around the dark stuff, the shit that nobody sees, the, the stuff in the shadows, how comfortable, being uncomfortable they were. And there was lots of parallels that those that got comfortable with that were the ones that were more likely to persevere and eventually pass out and qualify. And I think so many of our high performers talk about grit. They maybe don't use that phrase, but it's certainly something that we can develop, we can improve and therefore give us our greatest chance of achieving our own ambitions. And I also got the sense when I was talking to her that it's just really important to keep on asking yourself questions, even if those questions are actually quite difficult ones to ask and, and quite difficult ones to answer as well, because I think that is what eventually gets you to the place where she is now. And I, I, would, I would kind of, look, I'm surmising here because I don't know her personally, but from that conversation, I think that she's in a good place, but it's a work in progress to make sure she stays in a good place, which is the same for almost everyone you walk past on the street isn't it yeah definitely i think again i think it's a really astute point you're making jake around just checking in with yourself just asking yourself am i happy with where i am what i'm doing uh and how i'm going about doing it are three really simple questions that then if the answer comes back as no again like kate said that's why well what do i need what resources do i need what do i need to do differently that puts me in a better place and asking those questions like you say it's not always comfortable but it is healthy and I think the other sort of overriding feeling I have from that is almost expect that you're going to go through difficult times expect that they're, they're on their way because I think to give yourself the the sort of um the tools to deal with that is what gets you through and then when you come through the other side I mean Kate talks with such clarity now that story she told about a young athlete coming in and questioning her efforts in the gym and and having to really kind of control herself to to deal with that properly is a is an example of someone who clearly is emotionally connected to herself. She's got bags of emotional intelligence, but she was almost hiding that, wasn't she, behind the facade of having to be a captain and by the sounds of it, quite a tough captain earlier in her captaincy. That you know, that's what she did to protect herself, I guess. Yeah, and again, she, it's interesting she referenced the work of Ben A. Brown, the sociologist and researcher on this, that speaks so powerfully and passionately around vulnerability. The more that we can make ourselves vulnerable, the more human we become, and the more human we become, the more easier it is to connect with other people. And at the heart of her, uh, uh, with the England hockey team, and as the captain, it was her humanity and her decency that was central to it, not being the invulnerable leader that she thought uh, they wanted from her. And I think you have to be at a certain place and a good certain place in your life to be able to come on a podcast like this and talk in the way that she did. I, I kind of get the sense that maybe when she retired, she was kind of thinking, well, that's it, what do I do now? But I get the sense that actually there's a lot of her story that has yet to be written and it's quite exciting stuff ahead, you know? Yeah, definitely. Again, you know, like she spoke about, one of her non-negotiables was this idea of putting the team first and in her new language, that's about putting society first, caring about the world, being a spokeswoman for injustice and calling it out wherever it is. 
I think that she's going to make a big impact in whatever she chooses to do next. Wasn't Kate an absolute pleasure to hear from? Um, and actually, do me a favour, okay? Just ping me a message on Instagram. You know where I am, at Jake Humphrey. I would love to know your thoughts on what Kate had to say. I love getting feedback and I would love to, I'd love to hear what you say and... Um, hopefully, um, time permitting, I'll ping you back a voice note, which is what I like to do to, to people that send me a message on Instagram. So just let me know what you thought of that really brilliant conversation with Kate. And of course, thanks to the professor. Thanks to Damien for being brilliant as always. Thanks to the whole team, to Will, to Hannah, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, to Kate for coming on the podcast. And of course, to all of you for sharing and talking about the podcast. Um, you know, people have to make an active decision to go and find high performance. It's not just sitting there on the television vision screen at seven o'clock on a Friday night you know it's an effort and we really do appreciate you taking the effort to find these podcasts and then to share them and to talk about them and to whatsapp them to your friends and to put them on work emails and stuff so thank you very much indeed and if you would like more from the high performance podcast then go to at high performance go to at liquid thinker go to at jake humphrey and check out the newly released cover for our book which we're really excited to share with you the book is out on the 9th of december the cover has just been released we're excited the book's brilliant i know you'll be excited too and you can pre-order just by clicking on the description and you can pre-order just by clicking on the link in the description for this podcast um, and check out our new book and check out our new book, Lessons from the Best on Becoming Your Best. Right, that's it from me. Um, thanks very much for enjoying this Olympic special with Kate Richardson Walsh. See you on Friday for a bite-sized episode and of course, another couple of brand new high performance episodes coming your, night, coming your way next week. Have a good one, wherever you are in the world. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.